you have your Bible, please grab it. Uh, turn to the letter of 3 John, the third epistle of John. We are continuing on in our, in our series through the summer called Only One, where we're looking at the four uh, one-chapter New Testament letters. So we've already seen Philemon, and then we've done over the last couple weeks 2 John. Today we're beginning 3 John. This morning we're going to look at the first eight verses of 3 John. I'm very excited about it. I love, love these letters of John. So let me read our text for us. If you have it, please read along with me, phone or app or whatever. Um, 3 John, verses 1 to 8. I'll read it, I'll pray, and then we'll jump into it. The apostle writes this. He says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles." Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. That's God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the Bible. Lord, I want, I want to thank you, gracious, heavenly Father, that you have given your words to us in written form, that we can unpack them, we can study them, we can meditate on them, we can memorize them, God, and, and we can preach them. Declare them. God, and we recognize that, that preaching is foolishness, as your word tells us, apart from your spirit working. So, God, that's just what we expect as we come before you today. We just, we just expect your spirit to work. Thank you, Lord, that you're faithful. You're faithful when your word is open to, to meet with us in spirit. Thank you that you're faithful to change our lives, God. And we just ask for that this morning. We ask, as always, God, that you would remove distractions from this place, that I wouldn't be a distraction to my brothers and sisters and those you want to draw into the family today. But, God, I also ask that you would just still our minds and still our hearts. God, we come in here with so many different things, and we just, we just desperately need to be nourished by your word to eat. God, to chew on what's here. We know it's more valuable to us than bread, so please help us, Lord. We love you. We love you so much, Father. Thank you for all you've done for us and help us now in Jesus' name because there is no other name. Amen. All right. If you've been around for the last few weeks, you will notice, especially the last couple weeks we've looked at 2 John, you'll notice that 3 John opens really similarly to 2 John. The apostle again refers to himself as the elder, denoting his age, Right, his age, that's for sure part of that. His authority and his love for the local church. Now that's important that he calls himself the elder because we have elders in our church. We raise up elders. The church is commanded to raise up elders and we need to know what to look for in good elders and those we should be raising up as elders. John is a good elder. I just want you to see that. He loves the people that make up Jesus' church. He defends the truth. He fights for faith. He calls believers to live in light of the gospel, and he leads them by example. 
He's a good elder. This is a man that I would have loved to have spent a lot of time with, just learning from, just sitting under. And thankfully, I, I think I'm going to get to do that one day. That's who John is, the elder. Now, John clearly designates the recipient of this letter as a man named Gaius. Now, we don't have a lot of information on who the Gaius of this letter is. We just, don't, we just simply don't know. The, the name Gaius is mentioned four times in the New Testament. We have two mentions of Gaius in Acts, one in Romans and one in 1 Corinthians. But those aren't probably the same Gaius as far as we know. The, the name Gaius is a lot like our present-day John Smith. There's just a lot of them. Like if you would have opened up the phone book in John's day, it would have been like guys, 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 guys. There's a lot of them. So because we don't have a lot of facts and information on who exactly the guys of 3 John was, there's a lot of speculation. That's what we do as people. When we don't know something, we make stuff up. We're really good at that. So there's a lot of speculation, but what we know for sure is that Gaius was a member of this local church that John sent this letter to with a man named Demetrius. The date that 3 John was written is probably very close uh, to, if not the same as 2 John, which means that the apostle is still living in the intellectual center of Asia Minor, a city called Ephesus. It, it also means that John is still going to great lengths to emphasize the importance of truth in light of the early Gnosticism that was beginning to take hold both culturally and in the church. We've talked about that for a couple of weeks now. In fact, in our first eight verses, the verses I just read for you, the word truth is repeated five times, right? So truth is a big deal. Truth is very important here. But the primary thrust of 3 John is different than 2 John. 3 John can really be broken up into two major sections. First, we have the commendation of Gaius. So in the first part of the letter, Gaius is being affirmed as someone whose life has actually been changed by the gospel. I mean, the way he lives is actually different now that he knows the gospel, now that he believes in Jesus. The truth has changed him. And the specific example of that in Gaius' life that John points to is the way that he has taken traveling missionaries in, supported them, shown them care, and loved them despite the fact that they were strangers to him. That's the first section, first eight verses. Then in the second section of 3 John, the commendation of Gaius is directly contrasted with the condemnation of a man named Diotrephes. Right, so Diotrephes, unlike Gaius, has not only refused to welcome these missionaries known personally to John, but he's actually kicked them out of their churches. He's kicked them out, he's refused to welcome them, and he's bad-mouthed the apostle while doing that. So John tells us that this man likes to put himself first and doesn't acknowledge the authority that's over him. So this morning, today, we're doing part one. The commendation of Gaius next week, the condemnation of Diotrephes. So there's two things. If you're taking notes, uh, if you want to record these, go ahead. There's two things that as I read this passage that really struck me and that I want us to pay attention to. The first thing I want us to see in these first eight verses is the heart of John. I want us to notice the heart of the apostle. And, and the second thing that I want us to see is the life of Gaius. So the heart of John and the life of Gaius. I, I just want to look at both those things this morning really simply. And as we do that, I'm going to ask us a couple questions. That's all we're doing. So, so let's jump right into the first verse of our text. If you have it, please look at it. Uh, 3 John verse 1. In verse 1, we read this. We read, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. 
So the first thing we read after the initial greeting is John declaring his love for Gaius. He says, I love you in truth. Now, just like we've seen in 2 John, the word truth here refers to the truth. The truth of the gospel, which culminated in the person and work of Jesus. So John, in other words, is saying, because of the gospel, Gaius, my affections are stirred up for you and I truly love you. I truly love you. He goes on in verse 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, I love this prayer. I love this prayer of John because we learn something really important in it. We learn that God, almighty God, transcendent and imminent God, we learn that God cares for the whole person. See, John doesn't just love Gaius in a theoretical way. He isn't just saying, Gaius, look, we're joined spiritually as brothers, and so I care for your spiritual well-being. No, he's telling Gaius that his love for him, based in Jesus, is a love that extends through his entire life. The apostle, the elder, prays for the good physical health of the one he loves in spirit and in truth. The love of God flows through John and causes him to care about all aspects of the people around him, their souls and their physical well-being. Now, this point may seem somewhat minor to us, may seem small to us, but to John, this may have been especially important to say in light of the early Gnosticism that was beginning to take hold. As we've seen, Gnostics believed essentially, I mean, if you boil it all down crudely and dangerously oversimplify it, that matter was bad, right? So physical matter, physicality was inherently corrupt and sinful, while to be spirit or spiritual was good and right and pure. Gnostics would attempt to care for the spiritual needs of those around them while either neglecting the physical altogether or by beating it into submission through self-inflicted pain. But that's not the way of the gospel. See, God's word tells us that actually to be human is to be both spirit and body. God's word tells us that God actually created us physical. That's how he wanted us ideally to be before the fall, physical. And that he created the physicality all around us. And just, and just because the physical world has been corrupted doesn't mean it's inherently bad. It means it, means it needs to be redeemed. That's why in Jesus, Christians are called to pour themselves out for the whole person, spirit, and body. Listen, our hearts don't just break for the broken souls of the people of our city. Our hearts break for the broken lives, for the broken bodies, for sickness, for death, for all the things that aren't the way they were meant to be. All right, John goes on then to tell us why, why he's praying for Gaius this way Lately, verse 3, have a look at it. He says, I pray this for you, Gaius, because for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Okay, now we're starting to get closer to the heart of John. See, he's just let Gaius in on a little secret. He says, look. The brothers, they came to me and they told me of your obedience to Jesus. They told me of your life and your actions and how your actions have been transformed by the truth. Literally, the phrase we have here in the original Greek 
implies that these men went to John and continually, continually lifted the good works of Gaius before him. People who crossed paths with Gaius were so struck by the life that he lived, they couldn't stop talking about it. Now, I want to press the pause button for just a second on the life of Gaius because we're going to look at that in our second point. What I want us to focus in on right now is the heart of John. I want us to notice what happens to John when he hears this amazing report about Gaius. There's two words. Two words we need to see. We just read them. They're right at the beginning of verse 3. Have a look. They're very important. He writes, I rejoiced greatly. Rejoiced greatly. John rejoices greatly when he hears about the life of this man. Now look, John didn't have to rejoice greatly. John could have just rejoiced a little bit. He could have, right? He could have just rejoiced a small amount. He could have just been pleased. He could have sent Gaius a note saying, Gaius, look, man, I am proud of you, Gaius. I've been encouraged Really encouraged to hear how well you're doing, Gaius. You're a good man. Keep up the good work. Gold star for Gaius. Could have done that. But that's not the picture we have of John. It's not the picture we have of this old, well-respected apostle. Now, I don't know about you, but I imagine John here. We know he's an old man. He's probably um, the last surviving apostle at this point. So there's no one else around that actually physically walked with Jesus and was commissioned as an apostle. So I imagine John kind of old man, long white beard, with with kind of like a dusty kind of grayish cloak on and a walking stick that he just had with him everywhere he went. I, I guess I sort of see Gandalf when I think of guys, except for you just minus the pointy hat. Right, that's John. That's at least what I think about. That's biblical. I saw it in the Bible that had pictures. So I know that it's inspired. (laughs) And the picture we have here is of this Gandalf-like John hearing this news and going just a little bit crazy. I mean, he looks a little bit senile from the outside looking in. This old man greatly rejoices. I mean, you can imagine him kind of hopping around. He's very excited about this. He's celebrating the life of this man. Hear me. This is what John loves. That's what he loves. This is what gets John amped. This is where his horsepower comes from. This is what John is passionate about. Make no mistake, we're seeing the apostle's heart here. But John doesn't even just leave it there. He wants to push this Further, he wants to keep emphasizing exactly the kind of rejoicing greatly that took place in him when he heard about Gaius. He wants to make sure Gaius is getting this. So he writes in verse 4, please have a look at it, that he actually has no greater joy, no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in the truth. Now, let's park here because this is an incredible, an incredible line. This is one of those Bible verses that's made its way onto so much Christian paraphernalia that it's easy to just kind of bypass it. In fact, I remember the first time I came across this verse that, that actually stuck in my head. I was probably seven or eight. I, I remember this. I was at my friend's house, and, and his mom had one of those little flip calendars that had kind of every day on it, those little mini things. And at the end of each day, at the bottom, it had a verse. 
And I remember when on one day I read this verse, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Because this is on calendars and coffee cups, it's easy for us to just kind of bypass it, to skip over it, think that's a nice sentiment. But I don't want us to miss what's here. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, meaning his spiritual offspring like Gaius, are walking in the truth. Listen, what's happening here is that the apostle is laying out for us the thing that he loves most in his entire life. This is the thing that makes John's life happy. This is the thing that brings him contentment and fills his heart with joy. Listen, this is what John wants from life. What John loves, what John wants is to know that the gospel he's preached, the gospel that he's poured his life out for, that that gospel is bearing fruit in the lives of those people that it's touched. As a man shaped by the gospel of Jesus, John wants nothing more than to bear good fruit. Nothing brings him greater joy than that. See, the apostle would have known the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the man who came before Jesus. You know, he ate locusts and he wore the fur. He was the one who came before, he was a wild man, crazy man. He came and he preached repentance and he prepared the way for Jesus. And one of the words, one of the recorded uh, words we have from, from John the Baptist in Matthew 3.8 is when he commanded those around him to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The apostle knew that his standing with God wasn't evidenced by his family line, wasn't evidenced by his great theology, wasn't even evidenced by the amount of time that he spent with the physical and historical Jesus. No, he knew that his right standing with God and the inheritance given to him through the gospel would be evidenced by bearing good fruit. Now let's not mix this up. We're not saying John's earning his salvation through works. No, he's celebrating the news of Gaius in part because he knows that this good fruit evidences the work of God's spirit in him. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16, you will recognize them, people, by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Because John knew this, the thing that brought him the maximum amount of joy in life, the thing he ran after and pursued with everything he had, was for the truth of the gospel to transform the lives of those around him. And when he saw that, when he saw that, nothing could contain his joy. Nothing could hold that in. And as I was thinking about this over the last couple of days, I just couldn't help but think about my own life. I couldn't help but think how, how I, how Matthew Menzel in 2014, how I measure up personally to the Apostle John here. What do I want from my life? 
What is it that drives me? What do I care about? I worked hard personally this week trying to answer that question. So let me ask you. What is it for you? What do you want? What do you want in life? What's your life about? What are you pursuing? I mean, just narrow it all down to one thing. What is it? What is it for you? What are you chasing with your time and your energy? Now, I realize that that question feels unfair. It feels unfair, and it feels unfair because it is unfair. It's an unfair question. It's unfair because this question is way too simplistic. It's so simplistic, in fact, that it almost feels impossible for us to answer. What do I want? How can you possibly ask me what I want and then to boil it down to one thing like that? I mean, our lives are busy. Our lives are filled with all kinds of stuff. That's a tough question to answer. But I think at the very least, at the very least, we need to admit this morning that that's a troubling reality. Because John had a very clear answer to that question. See, despite the fact that this question of what we want most in life is hard to answer, we're not off the hook either. I think if anything, our crazy lives demand, our crazy lives make it even more important that we work to answer this question, which is why our text helps us do exactly that. So we've seen the heart of the apostle, we've seen his answer to that question and what he wants most in life, and now we move to looking specifically at the life of Gaius. Please have a look with me at verse 5. Verse 5 to verse 6, John writes this. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, stranger as they are, who testified to your love before the church. Now remember, John has received a report on the life of Gaius by some brothers who'd come in contact with him. They came and they continually spoke of the obedience that Gaius demonstrated to the truth of the gospel. Specifically, as John points to here, in the way he took traveling missionaries, strangers though they were, into his life and loved them and cared for them. And get this, Gaius, Gaius now has a reputation. See, Gaius is known for something. He's known for sacrificially responding to the truth of God's word. And that's been evidenced by his love and care for those he's come in contact with. And this, this reality is what helps us answer the question of what we want from life. See, it can be hard to think of an answer to a question like that because our lives are crazy. There's so much going on in them. We're all pulled in so many different directions. We have so many responsibilities. We're just so divided. But the reality, the reality is this. The reality is that the answer to that question already exists and is already written on every single one of our lives and is already on display for the watching world to see. It's already there. What we want from life above all else is revealed when we ask the question, what are you known for? What are you known for? 
See, John, as we saw last week, was known for his love, the love apostle. Gaius, as we've just seen, is known for his obedience to the truth, evidenced by his life and his love. What these guys were known for tells us what they wanted. It's what they ran after. It's what they put their energy into. It's what drove them, and it's what people saw. It's what people saw. In the same way, what we want at the deepest level will be the thing we chase and the thing people know us for. Often we don't think about that, but it's true nonetheless. For example, if our life's ambition is a certain career or a certain job, people will know us for our work. If our life's ambition is comfort, rest, a great retirement, people will know us for our planning and our financial prowess. If our life's ambition is to raise good kids, people will know us for our great parenting. If our life's ambition is to be really fit, people will know us for the amount of time we spend in the gym. If our life's ambition is to be famous or rich or happy or healthy or whatever it is, people will know us for the, how we chase those things. In the same way, if our life's ambition is to glorify God, people will know us for our repentance, our humility, our love of God, and our love of others. It's what we'll be known for. What we're known for tells us what we want. So let me ask you a slightly easier question. What are you known for? What image of yourself is important to you that people around you see? Now look, I get, I get that it, it's low-hanging fruit, but this, I mean, this point could not be easier to illustrate with social, than with social media. Because we literally take pictures or posts of what we want people around us to see, and then we put them out there for mass consumption. So it just becomes a really easy point to illustrate. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just what we do. So what's your thing? What are you most proud of? Is it your clothes, your hair? For me, it's hair. <laughs> That's what it is for me. Very proud of that. Your work, friends, food, alcohol, your amazing intellectual insights, your theological rigor, your political opinions, your sense of humor. What do you want people to see? You want them to think about you and think what? What do you want to be known for? Now, maybe it seems like I'm taking really small stuff and blowing it up really big and it's strange. I'm, making, I'm putting way too much stock in things like social media. I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. Maybe it seems like that, but I don't think that's what I'm doing. I don't think that at all. See, our lives, our lives aren't made up of a few big moments. Our lives are are made up of thousands and thousands of tiny ones. When we're finally face to face with Jesus, it's the many, many small things we did that will count toward our faithfulness or our lack thereof. It's the small things that reveal our hearts. It's the small things that will matter for eternity. We need to pay more attention to the small things. For this reason, Jesus, in Matthew 12, 36, said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people 
will give account for every careless word they speak. Now I'll tell you what, that is a terrifying passage for somebody like me who talks a lot. I talk a lot. That's terrifying. But this isn't merely limited to our words. How we spend our lives in relation to the small things in them will reverberate into eternity for better or for worse. The little things. What we want to be known for tells us what we want more than anything else. Now please hear me. By God's grace, this is a fairly easy sermon for me to preach here. Now, we're by no means a perfect place. We're by no means a perfect group of people. I know I don't need to tell you that. The longer you've been around, the more you know that. But because of God's mercy on us, because of his steadfast love, because of, because of his great grace, I can stand here and I can tell you with all integrity that many of you, like Gaius, are known for walking in the truth. Many of you are known for that. Many of you are known for your faithfulness. Many of you are known for your repentance and your humility. Many of you are known for the way that you tirelessly serve behind the scenes. Many of you don't even know that you're known for these things, but you are. Many of you are known for your generosity. Many of you are known for your love and care for those without homes and families and resources. Many of you are known for these things because what many of you want from life is for people to come to Jesus and for you yourself to become more like him. Many here are known for walking in the truth. And I want to encourage, I want to encourage those of you who are known for these things the same way that John encouraged Gaius. You have a reputation for walking in the truth and it's evidenced by your love and it's evidenced by your life. And I can speak on behalf of the leadership here and tell you that you are a great joy to lead and a great privilege to serve. I mean that. Great joy. You bring your gift to those around you in this body. And listen, you will be rewarded by Jesus himself. Our ministry appreciation parties, they don't cut it. You will get a, an eternal reward. And I not only want to encourage you, like John encouraged Gaius, but I also want to exhort you. I want to exhort you in the same way that John exhorted Gaius. See, there was a purpose behind this public commendation of this man. There was a reason John did this. It wasn't just to pump his tires. It wasn't just to let him take the next season of ministry off. John wasn't writing to say, Gaius, good job, take a break. No, John encouraged him with these words in order to spur him on to continue. Which is why in verse 6 to 8, please read it, verse 6b to 8, John follows up his mentioning of Gaius' good service and love by exhorting him to continue doing this. He writes to Gaius, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, that's the name of Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So this brings me to the question I want to wrap up with this morning. I've asked you a couple questions. I've asked you what you want. 
I've asked you what you're known for. And I want to wrap up with the question, what will you do? What will you do? See, there's, there's three, there's possibly four uh, groups of people here in this room this morning. And the, question, the answer to the question, what will you do, is different for each group. See, the first group are those people who, you, you haven't heard a word I've said. You haven't heard a word I've said because I'm boring and your phone's not boring. So you haven't heard me. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for being here. What will you do? Just come back. Just come back. We normally have better preachers up here. Just keep coming. Okay? That's what we asked for from you this morning. The second group. The second group is made up of those people who have a hard time relating to what we've been talking about today because you haven't known the love of God found only in and through Jesus. You haven't known the grace of God given to you only through Jesus. You haven't experienced it. Your faith is still in what you can do instead of what Jesus has done. It's a big problem. So what will you do? Our prayer, our prayer is that today you'll look to Jesus. Just look, look to him. That you'll place your trust in him. That you'll see your own sin, your own rebellion, your own brokenness, your own frailty. You'll see that the brokenness of your life is outside of your ability to fix. And you'll look instead to your Savior. That you'll put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus for this life and the one to come. Instead of what you can accomplish. The third group here are those people who fall into the same category as Gaius. You're known for walking in the truth. You're known for pouring your life out because of the gospel and for the sake of the name, Jesus. That's what you're known for. What will you do? Continue. Continue. Life is short. Our lives are a vapor. It will end soon. I promise you. That's not morbid, that's reality. Even if you get 90 years, we are dust. These bodies are dust and they will return to dust. Don't put your stock in them. Don't be lulled into the illusion that things will always continue the way things are right now. That was the mistake the Bible tells us in Noah's day. And that was the mistake some were making in the early church. Let's not make the same mistake. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first began. Don't make the mistake of thinking, man, it's been thousands of years since Jesus has left. That means we're thousands of years closer to his return. Invest this small amount of time we have in the kingdom to come. It's eternal. How great of a mistake would it be to invest everything you have in temporary riches at the expense of eternal ones given to you already in Jesus? Instead, we get to take our lives and the gifts he's given us and we get to use them for the sake of his name and for the sake of his glory. Continue. Continue. And for eternity, you will reap the rewards. Finally, the fourth group of people are those here who know Jesus, but your life is really about a lot of other things. You know Jesus, but you're known for other things. 
You love a lot of things. You're distracted. You're floating. And sadly, listen, you're doing exactly what Scripture warns us against. You're presuming on the kindness of God. You've been encouraged and fallen in love with the gifts instead of giving yourself to the one who gives the gifts to you. You take the pleasures of your life and you think that that's God's encouragement to you, that everything's great, everything's okay. No, his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What will you do? My prayer for you as it's been over the last several days, is that your heart will be stirred in its affections for Jesus. That your desires will be transformed to the point that you love him and want him more than anything else in the entire world, just like the Apostle John. And then my prayer for you is that you'll turn from all that's distracting you and give every moment to walking in light of the truth. My prayer is that you'll be known for that work and it will be evidenced by your love of God and your love of others and that you too will reap the rewards and enjoy the presence of God for eternity. This is what's at stake. This is what God's word calls us to. So let me pray for us to that end. Would you pray with me? Father, gracious heavenly Father, as we've said this morning a few times, it's in the name of Jesus that we come to you because there is no other name. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved, by which we can be reconciled, made right, find the lives that we were created for. And God, I just ask today that your hand would be heavy upon us. That your spirit would be heavy upon us. And that that heaviness would result in just a, the, the deepest kind of, the deepest joy that we've ever experienced. God, and it would also just be heavy on us in, in leading us on the narrow road that you've marked out. The narrow road that you said few will find. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. I pray for every one of, of the people in those groups, God, whether they're known for walking in the truth, whether they're not walking in the truth, whether they don't know you, wherever we all are, God, would you just take us from where we are and bring us closer to you this morning. We're desperately in need of you, desperately in need of your spirit. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, that we can trust you for this work. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.